Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR would like to pay acknowledge to their elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am until 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. In the studio you have me, Zoya, you have Madison. Hello. And you have George. Good morning. I shouted out good morning and I expected the others to go, good morning. (laughs) But they were obviously getting their stuff up to talk about and I was like, Okay, it's just me who's having a good morning then. Just waking up. <laughs> How is everyone's mornings going? Um, pretty good. My cat uh, actually, uh, I stepped in cat poo this morning, so that was great. <laughs> I thought we were um, going to hear a really cute cat morning story. No. Like, they snuggled into me. And Not at all. No, they actually came running. She, she came running up to me, um, meowed with, like, quite desperately, and then... Um, pooed next to my foot and then I forgot about it and then continued to, to step. So um, that was, was great. Carpet or floorboard? Floorboard. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so good, good morning. Surely that's good luck, like bird poo or something. I'm hoping so. Yeah, I'm really hoping so. I think anyone that like sort of secures luck to stepping in, in cat poo um, is probably not going to be bestowed with too much luck. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Let us know by, by the end of the day. If something Next week on Tuesday Breakfast. Meowed yeah. <laughs> 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 desperately. Yeah, with, like a croak as well. Like it was quite... <laughs> like a guilty croak? Oh, more just like a... <laughs> like something's coming. Uh, yeah, real, real angsty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good morning, everybody. (laughs) This is Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. (laughs) And um, how was everyone's weekends? Anything anything more exciting than than Lucky Cat Poo? Hmm, I think I had a pretty pretty chill weekend, really. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot to report. Not a lot to report. Chill weekends are are really, really important, I think. Mm. Exactly. Really, really lovely. Just surrounding yourself with... You know, friends and family and people who make your heart sing, I think it's something we all need to be doing as much as we can. Mm. So, how's our show looking today? Pretty good. We're actually really excited to get to hear a conversation between former Tuesday Breakfast producer and presenter Ayan, who spoke with Lavanya Savaraja from the Migrant Workers Centre about the challenges facing migrant workers in Australia. And the, we've had the Migrant, migrant Workers Centre on a couple of times. They do really, really, really good work and, mm. and hopefully are getting the word out there every year that they're around. Um, and then we'll hear a little segment from Take It Black. Have you heard of this new podcast? Oh, I, I think I've heard of it, but I haven't actually listened. 
Yeah, it's pretty new. Hey, I think yeah. they're just into their like third or fourth episode. It's hosted by Ray Johnson and Jack Lattimore, and in this episode they talk about Black History Month, which is February, right? Yeah. And they interview Carla and Ross, who make uh, I think they make the show Living Black, and they interviewed Brian Stevenson, who is who wrote the book which became the film Just Mercy. Okay. I haven't seen it, but it, he sounds like a really incredible guy, and they talk about the differences between truth-telling and history uh, between the US and Australia. So we're kind of going mm. to jump into that conversation midway where they talk about some of those differences and maybe what Australia could learn from some of that stuff over there. Nice. That sounds really, really interesting. Yes. We're also hoping to bring you some more of our um, semi-regular uh, flashback to the speeches that took place uh, during this invasion day just to kind of keep that momentum going mm. and um, keep sharing the, um, that audio content. Um, we then have an interview, is that right, George? Yes, so we'll be talking to Jeremy Poxon, who I believe is still the media officer at the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and we'll be talking about the RoboDebt class action, and there was an update last week which I'm sure many of you have heard that the the government has said that they don't have a duty of care to people. <laughs> if not them, who? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're not responsible. <laughs> um, you've, you've voted us in to be responsible for the nation. But yeah. yeah. We voted us out. <laughs> no. This I've, I'm really I'm just just ba- I guess baffled, and I'm sure many people are, and and would like to kind of learn more about how this class action is going and I guess predictions on what the outcomes might be as well. Mm. Mm, that sounds really, really important. Um, but up first, we have uh, the news headlines from Zoya. <laughs> I'm going to start with a report um, from Al Jazeera about the femicide crisis in Mexico. This report is two and a half minutes long. It has reference to some rather heavy stuff um, when it comes to um, sort of sexual assault and murder. So if that's not something that you want um, to be hearing in um, at 7.06 on a Tuesday morning, uh, please feel free to go off and brush your teeth or do the dishes or something for the next um, two and a half minutes. And then we'll come back with some other news headlines protest against years of femicides. There's so much violence, I don't know any woman who hasn't suffered. And here on the outskirts, we're the forgotten ones. Here's where they come to throw the bodies. More than 10 women are killed every day across the country, and it's getting worse. In 2019, the number was double that of four years previously. But this month, the issue came to a head with two horrific murders. Ingrid Escamilla was stabbed and flayed. Seven-year-old Fatima Aldriguet was kidnapped outside her school, then raped and strangled. After Ingrid's murder, this is what President López Obrador had to say. I don't want the theme of this press conference to just be about femicides. It's very clear that issue has been really manipulated by the media. Those who don't like us take advantage of any circumstance to generate campaigns of defamation. He later blamed the issue on social decay caused by neoliberalism. It outraged many. I can't even describe it. 
We're talking about a national emergency in femicides, and we have two cases that really blew everything up, and then the president says, no, don't get distracted. This isn't important. So what is important? What are his priorities as president? Women's rights advocates say on paper protocols exist to deal with violence against women, but in practice they're often ignored by authorities who can themselves be abusive. I've been sexually assaulted by police and you have to face up to it alone. That's because the people that show support and solidarity with you are in Mexico City, not here. But in the last year women have been coming together more and more to demand change. There's a relatively small number of women here, but protests like this one have been increasing across the country after years in which authorities have really done not very much to prevent femicides and abuses against women. Now the pressure's on. Now on the 9th of March, a national strike for women has been called. The movement is only growing. John Holman, Al Jazeera, Ikatepec. So, yeah, that's a bit of an update on what's happening in Mexico at the moment. I'm going to run a little bit deeper into the political context of that from a Guardian report. But before that, uh, George has some numbers. Yes. So if anything in that segment brought up anything for you, you can call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line on 1-800-806-292 or 1-800-RESPECT. So that's 1-800-737-732. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Mexico and then a couple of the headlines, well, one of the headlines, well, a couple of the headlines also talk about violence against women. So that's probably going to go on for maybe another three or four minutes uh, on those segments. Um, so again, please feel free, go and make, you know, a cup of tea or a toast or, you know, play a bit of music. Um, so the Mexico thing, at the end they spoke about the... Um, uh, statements made by the Mexican uh, president um, López Obrador and he said some things that are just really quite frustrating um, he wanted to focus more on his pet project of raffling off the presidential airplane um, he uh, he says um, basically people are saying that the message he's sending to women is basically you know I don't care um, and that he's, you know, effectively discrediting women. Um, he responded to questions about the femicides by blaming family breakdowns along with neoliberal policies implemented over the past three decades. So he is professed to be left-leaning and seems to be, um, you know, drawing on that a little bit and almost politicizing these deaths as a means to further his political career, um, you know, he cast blame on his predecessors, including those in Mexico City, uh, where he governed from 2000, 2005 um, and has heavily influenced local politics since leaving office. So there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of um, anger towards the upper echelons of power, something that I think we see in a lot of other contexts. Um, and I'll be speaking to a little bit in these little news headlines this morning. Um, it is, um, you can link it to the broader political mm. issues and changes. And it is mm. like post-NAFTA, You can the femicides are linked to post-NAFTA and the rise of neoliberal policies in Mexico yeah. and rising inequality and unemployment and all of these factors. So mm. what's, what is NAFTA? Um, I think it stands for the North American Free Trade Agreement. Oh, of sure. course, yeah. Yep. So basically um, the beginning of these basic unequal 
trade agreements between Mexico, the US and Canada, which forced forced them to, I guess, make a lot of neoliberal changes, which meant that people were increasingly working in insecure, casual employment um, and, you know, lack of social services, all those kinds of changes that come with neoliberal mm. policies. Mm. But NAFTA basically totally... Uh, what's the right word? Um, caused so much damage in Mexico to people's day-to-day lives and their jobs and everything was was so badly damaged by NAFTA. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure the stresses of that in a political context often translate to domestic um, yeah. environments. Yeah, totally. Oh, absolutely, mm. and we see that globally, don't we? Yeah, and I think this is something that we want to go a bit deeper into mm. um, yeah. hopefully in the next couple coming weeks yeah we'll try and get some someone on who knows far more about this who can talk about it um i also just wanted to touch on the fact that when i was trying to find some audio content to play about this because this is not an area i'm particularly across and so i i, I didn't want to be um coming up you know coming in and talking about it the main things that are coming up were all by men there was, there was a podcast, and I'm not going to talk about the name of the podcast or the parts on the podcast, but there was a podcast that was ostensibly about women. There's women in the title. There's a picture of a woman on the front of the podcast, and the host of the podcast is a white cis man. Mm. <laughs> and this is a long-running podcast about it, women, like, you know, global issues affecting women. Mm. You know, the report, you know, the, the journalist can't help that he's a man, and he obviously reported on the, on, the, on the piece with the voices of a lot of women who are involved in this activism, but... It was it was really quite interesting um, when trying to find stuff about this uh, about women that that it was being done by mm. white men mm. and just generally any news to get real like proper news on what's going on in Mexico in English is incredibly difficult mm. and most of the reporting if you speak to people. Um, Spanish-speaking people, and particularly people from Mexico, will tell you that the way the mainstream media reports on these issues in English is actually quite inaccurate. So yeah. what we're getting, you know, information that we're getting is not is not really covering it. Absolutely. And um, having said that, though, on 3CR, we have um, shows like Completada Bailable, which is on 6.30 uh, in English and Spanish every Wednesday on mm. this show, and it covers those kinds of issues. It talks about what's happening, and it's done by women who are, you know, from North Central and South America, um, you know, speaking about issues impacting those communities. So that's definitely a place where you can get, we can get that news. And um, yeah, um, talking about news, a couple more things. Um, just in the past couple of hours, Harvey Weinstein has been found. Again, this is content about um, violence against women. Um, Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty of rape in the third degree. Um, but he's been acquitted of rape in the first degree. And so that's on all the charges brought against him. Um, uh, So he, for those charges, he's facing up to four years in prison as opposed to up to 25 years in prison. Those two um, degrees of rape have different, you know, results of types of sentencing um the difference is that first degree requires forcible coercion there's some something somewhat um strange about saying that that rape doesn't can't involve forcible coercion um that that's a vagary of law in america um but he's also he's been found guilty of um 
another count of rape against another woman um, which has a top limit of 25 years. I don't want to go into the details of what mm. that count is, um, but there's been another type, which means he could face up to 25 years. He'll be sentenced on the 11th of March. Um, the people prosecuting in the case on, um, in Los Angeles have uh, said that he um, will face charges there and pro- will probably stand trial. So he is facing a lot of different um, potential, a lot, of, a lot of years in prison, um, as well as potential further charges. So watch this space. Um, in other news, um, uh, Prime Minister Ardern of New Zealand and um, Prime Minister Morrison are set to meet this week for their annual bilateral meeting. It's likely that the discussion will base, will sort of fit around the um, issue of uh, Australia deporting quite a few New Zealand citizens to Australia, uh, to New Zealand. Um, we spoke about this last week, um, many of whom could have been in this country since birth, not since, well, since shortly after birth. Um, there's been a connection. Uh, the rhetoric in New Zealand is that these deportations are leading to a rise in gang violence. Yes, it's a sort of interesting um, uh, politicization of migration there but mm. it's going to be a large part of the conversation climate may play a bit of a part but New Zealand whilst they've been very vocal around climate change and the climate crisis and have aligned themselves with the Pacific states their actions themselves don't really haven't really amounted to much so they don't have much of a leg to stand on when it comes to pushing for climate change um, in other news Bettina Arndt who has won the Order of Australia Uh, (laughs) has been referred to the Awards Council for review for that Mm. um, Order of Australia to be go to review because of more comments that she's made Mm. around um, violence against women in particular you know the event that happened uh, recently with um, uh, Hannah Clark and her children uh, up in Queensland Uh, the Victorian Attorney General Jill Hennessy the Victorian um, Liberal State MP Tim Smith and the federal Liberal Senator Sarah Henderson have all written to the Governor-General David Hurley requesting him to formally rescind the honour. Uh, Jill Hennessy was already planning on writing before these comments were made in relation to other work that she's done in this space as a um, <laughs> men's rights activist. Um, so, and some of the comments that she's made interviewing certain people. So it looks like potentially, maybe, she might have her award rescinded. Who knows? Uh, a couple more things. Um, my regular update on India. Trump is visiting India. So to um, right-wing men with cults of personality are coming together. Uh, that, <laughs> I think he must have landed in Glorious. the post. Yeah, I know. It sounds like a rom-com. <laughs> <laughs> I know. They're gonna, their, eye, their eyes will meet at, at, a, at, a, at a rally, and who knows what will happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a rom-com I want to see. No. That, is, that is not an image we want to be having in our heads at this time of the morning. Um, he's visiting India. Um, while this is happening, the protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act continue as well as different um, actions around that. So I reported last week that a bunch of people have been arrested in Karnataka, in the, town of, in the city of Bidar, for um, their involvement in um, or potential involvement in a play that a few students put on that was deemed to be um, potentially deemed to be critical of the Citizenship Amendment Act and the Modi government in general. These people are still um, in custody uh, and potentially facing charges of sedition, which fa- which which carry a um, 
a sentence of up to life imprisonment for sedition, uh, which is rather shocking. Um, a petition has been filed in the Supreme Court challenging this sedition case against the Karnataka School um, by social activist um, Yogita Bayana. So there's still, you know, people are, are sort of fighting this at, at all different angles about on the street. The protest by women in Shaheen Bagh in Delhi, the sit-in, is still continuing. You know, these, these things are still going on and they're fighting at all different levels. So whether that will have an impact, who knows? But, but, but you know, it, it, Indian protesters are not backing down in this case. Speaking about um, other protests in India, uh, in Kashmir, if we remember in August... Um, Article 370, which was a piece of legislation that allowed uh, the state of Jammu and Kashmir to function as a semi-autonomous region, was rescinded. Um, at that time, around, before that happened, and that, that was brought into you, that, that article was rescinded around 5,000 anti-Indian political politicians, activists, protesters, um, and political commentators were jailed without trial and the arrest continued after that. Um, following the rescinding of the article, nearly 50 senior pro-India politicians were arrested. They were all held without charge and without trial. Um, they've now been released, these senior politicians, these 50 senior politicians. Three, though, have been kept um, uh, in prison. Uh, they're being imprisoned in a, in a luxury hotel, but the story's coming out of it that it's, it's you know... It's not a great experience that they're, that they're having there. Uh, they've now been charged under India's Public Safety Act, which allows a person to be detained for up to two years without trial. Hmm. So that's continuing. Um, the fact that these are pro-India politicians who are being detained are really showing the, the draconian influence that, India, uh, that the Indian government is trying to have across India. The ban on social media in Kashmir continues, but obviously people continue to circumvent that via VPNs, as they do around the world. But the Internet, um, which has been restored, is not 4G, it's 2G, which <laughs> I didn't even know 2G existed. That's that me just being a super millennial, but that is like really slow Internet that's, that's preventing people from being able to communicate rapidly and easily. So, for example, if we wanted to try and interview a, a, an activist an activist in Kashmir, we would not be able to via, say, we, you know, we tend to use the Internet to do these things. We wouldn't be able to because the dialogue wouldn't be fast enough. Um, so that's, that's really quite um, an important thing to note. In slightly good news... On my ending of this, I tried to find a good news story, and I did find a slightly, I think it's a good news story. Tesco, the UK supermarket, um, has done a UK supermarket first and is launching um, plasters, band-aids, for a range of skin tones, light, medium, <laughs> and dark, which is something that doesn't exist out there. And they worked with, they've got a huge um, employee base who are very, very diverse. They work with a lot of their employees and with community to test out these plasters and these skin tones. And apparently one employee said, this is really, really great because um, their child actually feels a lot of anxiety and recently felt a lot of anxiety having to wear a plaster that stuck out so much at school, their small child, and now they don't have to. So I think that's quite a nice story um, and yeah that is my news roundup thanks so should we go to a song yes yes this is by Brittany Howard who is the former singer and guitarist I believe of Alabama Shakes mm. it's from her new album that came out late last year Jamie and this track is called Stay High 
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March the 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. This is Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, George, that song was so good. What was it? That song was by Brittany Howard off her new album, Jamie, from late last year, and it's called Stay High. I'm going to be listening to that whole album today. Yeah. I'm very excited. So we're going to go to a conversation now between Ayan Shirwa. Yay. Yay. Um, and who is also producing the show that we just heard. Diaspora Blues. We're really excited to catch the first episode of that. Yeah, very tune soon. In. 
Um, we're going to go to an interview now. So Ayan spoke with campa- campaigner Lavanya Thavaraja from the Migrant Workers Centre, and Lavanya discusses the challenges faced by migrant workers in Australia. She also shares details about the International Sisterhood Workshop event. The workshop is free, but registration is required, and you can do so via Eventbrite. Let's let's have a listen. Uh, Migrant Worker Centre is, uh, like, we do a lot of education sessions, we do a lot of outreach uh, and information sessions uh, in different languages where, uh, where migrant workers, uh, un- like, understand there's been a language barrier between the migrant workers and the union movements to make them understand their workplace rights. Uh, mostly uh, the countries they're from, uh, they may not have the rights, the sim- similar rights, uh, what they have here, so when they come here, they don't even uh, like realize what are the rights they have, so they don't ask for their rights. So uh, Migrant Worker Center uh, wanted to uh, make sure every migrant workers have been uh, have known what their rights are, so that they can uh, like like ask for their rights when they feel that they they ha- they are not uh, the employer is not providing all their entitlements. For example, ma- many migrant workers we've seen. Uh, and uh, haven't got the superannuations when we asked them, they said, is there any superannuations uh, or what is superannuations, the questions like that. And like after four or five years working in our industry. And uh, so it, uh, initially we did a lot of superannuation clients uh, and uh, only then migrant workers, real, like migrant workers also came to us realize that there is something called superannuations. So there are many things like that, though, like work, workplace health and safety, uh, like hazards and everything. They, many migrant workers doesn't realize, and it, it is um, it is really uh, dangerous when migrant workers are not uh, like many employers doesn't even care about uh, mm-hmm. telling migrant workers about these uh, work uh, like work, workplace health and safety and how they need to react when some hazards there one uh, and. When, when there is a fire, where is the fire extinguisher, how, where is the fire to, uh, exit and everything. It's because they are, most migrants are not fluent in English and they don't understand many things. The employer don't even try to tell those things in their own language. Uh, they don't bother at all and it costs many migrant workers' lives. So we we make sure we we deliver all these to migrant workers. They know everything before something We happens. have a lot of... Mm-hmm. Uh, wins from last year and um, dance case is very specific one where uh, like mostly um, backpackers they have very limited rights Darren actually uh, was very uh, like very confident and he actually know his rights and he doesn't know how to like exercise those rights uh, so uh, mostly we see migrant workers say don't know their rights. That's why they don't. They don't actually talk to other people. That uh, I'm not getting any pay, like correct pay or not. But Darren actually known. This is what he has to be paid. But he doesn't know how to ask for that. But he then realized. Uh, he know came to know that migrant worker sent uh, about us, and he spoke to us, and he uh, with. Uh, with our advice, he went to his workplace and he spoke to his co-workers because he was like everyone was angry because uh, and they they were not getting paid correctly. Uh, so it actually um, uh, helped Darren to organize that site and they uh, uh, they did an action in front of the store and the com- and the co- cafe uh, agreed to pay twelve thousand 
dollars uh, to unpaid wages to these workers to get the money back. Many people, they are they're scared about the visa conditions. They're scared about getting deported back. Uh, and they're scared about losing the job. But Darren was very brave to do that. We are here like more than one year, but it's really difficult for us to organize migrant women. Uh, it is mainly because migrant women uh, are uh, like mostly they are inaccessible. Uh, 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 the women we see, uh, they, they, they do a lot of work. Uh, they have other responsibilities like family responsibilities and stuff, and they are not able to engage with, uh, come out and engage with, engage and also organized by the uh, organized and join unions and stuff. So we last year we did an uh, in, in international women's day in southeast where we uh, invited a lot of migrant women uh, for the event where uh, they were uh, like most migrant women in that group were, ex were, were expressing their uh, how they feel in a new country and and uh, like most uh, how difficult for them to find a job and getting discriminated in the workplaces and uh, race, the racist uh, behaviors they faced mm -hmm. while looking for a job or while in the workplaces. So the stories actually inspired us and we wanted to do more work on uh, organizing migrant women and uh, like uh, telling them their rights and uh, getting them organized. Uh, so it is another step for uh, organizing migrant women. So in this uh, workshop uh, we we ha we are going to talk talk about uh, like uh, discriminations and race racism migrant women face and a few women will be sharing their stories and uh, uh, their experience of experiencing racism and discrimination uh, and how did they overcome and how did they organize their site. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was a conversation between campaigner Lavanya Thavaraja and Ayan Shirwa. If you'd like to know more about the Migrant Workers Centre, as well as any upcoming events, check out their website, atwww.migrantworkers.org.au. Oh, sorry, my mistake. <laughs> Scrap that. <laughs> www.migrantworkers.org.au or you can give them a call on 96593516. We're going to go to another track now and this is by one of my favourite artists at the moment, Kelsey, um, Kelsey Lou, and this song is called Blood. Blood is written in the law Nothing's hidden after all Someone's missing all the calls And I'm trying to get through Bodies written in the low Bodies hidden in the flow History has taught us Who's left to trust? Who's left to trust? 
Radical Radio Colours in one of 3CR's new T-shirts. The bright new design comes straight from this year's popular Radiothon poster designed by Aisha Tufa. T-shirts cost $30 to pick up or $37 with postage. So drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Call 9419-8377 to place your order. Or buy one online at 3cr.org.au slash shop. 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts. Get, Get one, one now. now. <laughs> You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We just heard a song from Kelsey Lou. That track was called Blood. Now we're going to go to a little segment from a new podcast called Take It Black. And it's, um, it's only in, into its third or fourth episode. This episode is the second one. It's on Black History Month. And we're going to jump in kind of midway into an interview between hosts Ray Johnson and Jack Lattimore, who speak with Carla Grant and Ross Turner. They're talking about civil rights, Black History Month, memorials and truth-telling. And just for a bit of context, because it is jumping in mid-interview, Carla and Ross went to Alabama to interview Brian Stevenson, who is a lawyer and he wrote Just Mercy, um, which has is now a film that's out. And... They talk about the differences between history and truth-telling in the U.S. and in Australia and maybe what we could learn from what's going on there at the moment. It's very open. It's very... It seems quite honest of the situation at the time. How do you think Australian 
museums, memorials to our terrible histories compare to what you saw over there? You don't see that here. You don't see anything like that here at all. No, nothing. That's all swept under the carpet. They have the the Rosa Parks Museum, the Mm. Martin Luther King, um, and, yeah, we just seem to be still... uh, We're well behind the eight ball in that respect. What do you think it would do for the general empathy and compassion of Australian people to be able to see memorials like this for our own struggles and movements over the years. When you see that sort of thing, like we did um, at the Legacy Legacy Museum, those letters, I mean, I read a few and then I just couldn't do it any longer because I just felt so sick inside, just, yeah, reading those letters and, and, you know, just seeing, knowing what those people are going through. um, Yeah, you just... um, it's very, very confronting. So I think that something like that is needed here. Just, you know, um, it, it, it really, it's, yeah, it's very confronting. But, you know, if people see, you know, read those sort of things or know about the past, and that's, you know, a part of all this truth-telling, I guess, um, yeah, knowing about what's happened, the true history of our, of our nation, then there'll, hopefully there'll be more understanding. Um, you know about what's happened in the past and and why things are the way they are now and at now and why we are trying to seek change in this country. Yeah, I hope it happens. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, with Ross, I worked with you on an article that you produced coming out of the Living Back uh, Living Black story, uh, and, and you pointed to the fact that um, there are memorial sites in Australia uh, around things, uh, you know, tragic events. Uh, like at Waterloo, um, the Waterloo Massacre. Uh, other uh, Down in South Australia, there's another, um, there's one up in Northern Territory in Gulf Country, which um, is a bit of a, a monument to some of the terrible history that happened there that itself has been um, sprayed with shotgun pellets and stuff like that. Um, are they enough for, you know, the purpose of m- m- uh, remembering Look, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think so at all. Um, it, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Like you, you've spurred me to think of a conversation I had with my mother recently. Um, you know, my parents are retired and they're doing that classic grey nomad thing of let's go travel around the country. Um, and funnily enough, because of shows like this one with Brian, and because of that article that I wrote, you know, naturally your parents are going to read what you, what you write or you hope. But um, my mum said to me very clearly, she's like, you know, we've noticed now, you know, like grey nomad style tours you start to see a lot of places called Dead Man's Creek or, you know, Black Guy's Creek or, you know, Massacre Site and, like, just random little names like that. And they've started noticing, hang on, there is a lot of, like, terrible names and terrible places across the country that just have, like, a flippant kind of name to it. And But because of the kind of shows that we do here with NITV, like, you are starting to see people go, oh, hang on a second. This isn't just a flippant thing. This is a real thing, and this is a terrible part of our past here. So I think, like, my my mum's terminology was, I think the grey nomads, as they start to travel, will start to, you know, learn more. But they're not going to really learn more unless they actually are actively trying. And so I do think we need to have, you know, a bigger memorial or a national memorial to something like the Frontier Wars because the fact that we don't have anything like that in this country... I found pretty shocking, and and certainly having been in the Legacy Museum and then seen the Lynching Museum, you know that was 
that was full on. And I just found myself going, why does Australia not have something like this? It's time we had it. And is that kind of the overall feeling that you left with, that we need to establish something similar here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So in terms of you know, changing that narrative in Australia, and obviously you can build a museum and point out these things that have happened, but what can we learn from you know, what the US has done with that kind of truth-telling and that kind of exposure of its past here? Well, in, in, in terms of the article that I wrote, like I, I spoke to a, a few academics that have done different things in this space, and, and one of the things that had sat front, front of my mind while being inside the Legacy Museum using an interactive map of the United States where you could zoom in onto different states and different counties and you could see where the lynchings were and they were all highlighted in red. And, you know, you'd have one where 100 people were killed on one day for no reason whatsoever and you could read a little bit of history there. And I was aware of the Massacre Maps project from, again, a story that I'd done with Jack and, and you know, got to interview John Maynard about that. And I started finding myself going, well, you know, this is great. There's something like this exists. The Guardian, you know, did a whole thing on the Massacre Map project. And, you know, you could go and, you know, online and move around and see different things there. But I, for me, it was being physically able to be in a room surrounded by all this other different history, different narratives and, you know, touch screens and zoom in on stuff that started to make things hit home that little bit more. And I just found that at the end of the day, you know, to change this narrative, you've got to get more people involved. You've got to have a place you can go to. And so the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is, you know, essentially the big lynching museum there in the States, well, that only opened mid-2018. And they had half a million visitors in one calendar year. And, like, if you think about it, these are people turning up to a sombre place to recognise the wrongs of the past. And there's a huge appetite for that. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to, I think, people's identity as well. And certainly identity is something that people are always trying to look into and search more for because people want to know their history. People want to know even the terrible history that may have come you know, from members of their family. And a lot of people tend to want to make amends for that. And I think you know, building a museum you know, is, is one thing, but it's the conversations that come from that. And you can definitely get a good national conversation from that. So obviously this story and the way it ended up was potentially not exactly what you expected going into it. Uh, I feel a sense that you've walked away with a, a little more than you anticipated. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's really touched my heart, I think. Yeah, and really opened my eyes to... Um, you know, to the history of, of um, America and, you know, I, I obviously knew a little bit about the history but going over there really opened my eyes. I learnt a lot more about it and the fact that, um, you know, we have similarities. There are similarities between, you know, the history of America and the, the history of Australia. There needs to be... We need to change the narrative. That's what they're trying to do there and, and that's what Brian is, is trying to achieve um, by you know setting up the Legacy Museum and the National um, M Memorial for Peace and Justice, and you know we're trying to do that as here as well to change that narrative, um, you know to ensure that the true history of our nation is told and and recognised and and known and taught in schools and um, yeah so it's yeah really yeah really learnt a lot from it. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us for this chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Carla, Ross, thank you. And thanks, Jack, as well. It's been another fantastic episode with you. It has, and it's gone very, very quickly. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We were just hearing from a new podcast called Take It Black, and if you enjoyed that, you can catch the rest of their episodes online. If you Google Take It Black SBS podcast, you'll, it'll come up and you can listen to There's a bunch of episodes there. And just for a bit of background, if you jump, if you came in sort of halfway, that discussion was between hosts Ray Johnson and Jack Lattimore speaking with Carla Grant and Ross Turner about their experience interviewing Brian Stevenson in Alabama. Uh, and talking about the differences between history and truth-telling between the US and Australia. The Taranta Festival is back for five days of music, dance, visual arts and food, celebrating southern Italian and Mediterranean culture. Featuring, direct from Italy, the voice of Enza Pagliara, Dario Mucci, Tarantula Garganica, and the pick of local acts, including... Alara, Delirium, Santa Taranta, Opabato, Arte Canela, Cavisha Mazzella, plus the launch of the Melbourne Taranta Orchestra and more. Melbourne Taranta Festival from the 11th to the 15th of March. Full program and tickets available online via trybooking.com and tarantafestival.com.au. Abalati. The Taranta Festival is a 3CR support. This is Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The time is 7.50 a.m. I think up now uh, we are going to be having a chat once more about something quite heavy. Again, violence against women. So for the next, you know, five to ten minutes, go for a walk or something like that. Um, Madison, why don't you take the lead? Yes. So um, it has been quite a heavy episode in regards to violence against women, but... I mean, that is the state of sociopolitics right now. Um, And last week, Hannah Clark, uh, 31, died in hospital after she was doused in petrol by the man she left, who I will not name and I I do not care to. Um, He also killed their three children, Alia, aged six, Lena, aged four, and Trey, aged two. And whilst there were other fatal cases of domestic abuse that occurred in the last 10 days, and I use abuse instead of violence um, deliberately because I think that abuse uh, can exceed... When people think about domestic violence, they assume that it's always physical, whereas abuse um, is often emotional, uh, financial, and, and there's other facets of abuse. So whilst there were other fatal cases, this particular one struck a chord um, mainly, again, for how the media attached signifiers of worth onto the the man responsible, so referring to him almost exclusively according to his status as an ex-NRL player, a league player, and in one headline so horrific that it's almost absurd, an ex-footy star who died in burning car showered kids with love. On Thursday, before being stood down from the investigation, Police Detective Inspector Mark Thompson um, said domestic violence orders had been granted against her ex-husband, Hannah's ex-husband, and there had been a number of engagements of police between the couple. The same man then proceeded to argue that he was keeping, and I quote, an open mind about the murder, a phrase that would never be married to any other sort of violent crime, insinuating that Hannah was in some way responsible for what proceeded. 
for me, what is particularly infuriating about this case is the way it's been adopted by pol- politicians who have blood on their hands, such as Scott Morrison, who act and perhaps are completely baffled by the state of events. But this is just another case of a kind of abuse that is never an isolated act. And the horrific, the horrific conclusion to Hannah and her children's abuse is just the final straw in a very predictable and systemic pattern that is so deeply misogynistic um, and structural. So for people listening at home that feel perhaps a little bit hopeless when it comes to uh, the violence against women um, that occurs in this country, it is worth being able to view this abuse through the lens of... It, it doesn't just start at something so violent. It starts... Um, with coercive control, it starts with disrespectful commentary, um, it starts with things that I'm sure a lot of the men we know and love have practised in their time and is worth um, constantly checking in with. So when Hannah left, her abuser um, really truly saw himself as an aggrieved father, um, making public declarations of love on his social media pages for the children he later killed. Uh, and forensic criminologist and homicide researcher Claire Ferguson told The Guardian... His project, so the project of abuse, had changed. Um, His goal was no longer to regain control he felt entitled to, uh, control over Hannah's movements, allegiance and so forth, um, as well as his capacity to own her and her children. But instead instead his goal really centred around punishment and revenge, so sure that something of his had been taken and redemption was required. So this means two things. Um, One, that the abuse was both predictable and thus preventable. Um... And in Queensland, what is so infuriating is the watershed moment for protecting women from domestic abuse was supposed to be the 2015 Not Now, Not Ever report, a document which made 140 recommendations that were all adopted by the government. But that same year, about 40% of calls to the Women's Legal Service, 40%, went unanswered due to resourcing constraints. So I just want to make it... um, known and obvious that whilst we are discussing domestic violence, we have to be really careful to speak about it in strictly uh, tragedy terms. This is a systemic issue. It is something that demands attention at the highest possible level, and it is quite infuriating to hear public statements from politicians such as Scott Morrison, who speak about it as if it was something that just occurred out of the blue, um, when it absolutely didn't. And even though statistics... uh, of police um, involvement is incredibly skewed given that a lot of survivors um, and victims of domestic abuse do not ever speak to police um, and often, more than often, cannot speak to police um, due to a lot of different systemic issues and um, the threat of being re-traumatised as well. So just a little friendly reminder um, that domestic violence is a product of sexism as at its highest form. Absolutely. There's a very well put there, Madison, I reckon. Um, and on that note, uh, there was a, a news headline that came through yesterday um, where a woman who prosecuted, a woman who um, was um, similar similar situation, a former partner doused with petrol in Queensland, the police refused to prosecute the case mm-hmm. they said that there wasn't enough there to prosecute that it wasn't that i think the quote it was public interest low That's level right. of public yeah. interest yeah and so she went down the very very tortuous and probably quite difficult route of 
pursuing the prosecution herself. Wow. And she was successful. But I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like. But that really demonstrates this, this systemic level mm. of, of sexism and, and systemic violence against women, where even the, yeah, even if they do go to police, where when you say so few women do, Mm. The, the the likelihood that they might not be believed or cared about believed I mean that's there's somehow something even worse about that Absolutely. they are believed and not listened to mm. and therefore the state is upholding that violence Absolutely. in that violence the, the structural violence is a part of the family violence that occurs in people's homes entirely exactly. yeah and um, I'm just noting from the um, Counting Dead Women Twitter feed that um, as of yesterday uh, it's nine women so far this year wow. who, who have died so I mean wh- what are we in now this is we're basically that's one that's one a week we're mm. coming up to so yeah it's something that we we can't forget and I know it's a difficult thing to talk about and to listen and be there's something so it's like it's everywhere Mm. both in people's experiences and in the news, and yet still it's seen as a non-issue. Absolutely. It's both everywhere and nowhere in the sense that what we view as violence, um, uh, what we socially view as violence and and larrikism or boys will be boys mentality don't match up in the public consciousness. Mm. So people are genuinely shocked when these situations happen, but everyone knows a man like that everybody knows a man at least a product you know that's part of that same system um and i i want to steer clear of individualistic sort of language here because i want to talk about the socialization of of these these men yeah yeah absolutely and i think that's you you make the point there of larrikinism and i think that's definitely a big part of the issue when the key marker of so-called australia Australian national identity is this, um, you know, gad about town mm. who, who, you know, is casually violent and drinks a lot and makes deeply inappropriate jokes. Mm. And that's still seen as, as a, as a marvelous thing to uphold. You know, we look at, we look, we see it, we see it in television, we see it in the media, we see it, we see it, um, in comedians and, and whatever. It's, how do we get a, how do we uncouple that from um yeah how do we how do we un, uncouple that from then the reporting on violence that exists totally in the media and especially when we consider this perpetrator was a, was a sports personality yes and the connection between sport and violence i mean as a sport sport has a lot of benefits sport can be an amazing bring it together of communities mm. and and you know there's so many stories of migrants and various people and be coming together because of sport you look at the aflw and what that's been Absolutely. able to achieve when it's done well but when this streak of larrikinism exists in sport and we uphold that as a thing that makes someone like you know a good egg mm. good, oh, he's a good bloke um yeah. excuse me for my terrible australian accent there. <laughs> yeah what do we do um, I just wanted to, just before we wrap up, Madison made a really good point about the comments like boys will be boys and I just finished reading Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life and she talks about phrases like that as act- they're actually instructions. Yeah, they're wow. They're not just throwaway comments. Oh. They're, you will be a boy. Yeah. Boys will be boys. And that's, that's what you so say to young children and they hear this and they go, oh, okay, like n- that's an instruction and an invitation to behave. Sorry, I'm speaking away from my mic. Um 
it's an instruction to behave in ways that we associate with what it means to be a boy. Yeah, wow. So, so it's not like it's a thing that we just ignore in terms of the way men are socialised. It's something we actively um, define and instruct and sort of um, induct men yeah. into that space. Yeah. Wow, that's chilling, really. Yeah, totally. <laughs> wow. Um, thank you for... Yeah. No, thank you. It's always um, a little bit sad having to talk about having to see these traces and get to know yeah. these women um post um but yeah follow the hashtag say her name project i think mm. that's an incredible initiative and i will not be saying this man's name and don't ever intend to yeah yeah for sure so moving on very briskly we have uh now a, an interview with a regular tuesday breakfast guest Jeremy Poxon, who is the media officer at the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jeremy. Morning. So you're here to talk to us about robo-debt, which I think is pretty, it's been pretty big in the news for some time, but for any listeners who might not know about what's been going on, could you give us a bit of background? Uh, so, yeah, uh, the robo-debt the government's uh, income averaging Scheme, um, which we've heard a lot about um, being completely, completely broken and enforcing uh, false debt on thousands and thousands of Australians, um, has been taken uh, to the High Court uh, through a class action uh, via Gordon Legal, um, who have now amassed uh, over 10,000 welfare recipients have, have signed up uh, to this action, which is, which is currently really holding the government's feet uh, to the fire, uh, to the point where um, late last year uh, the government conceded that aspects, um, especially the income averaging aspect of the Robodet scheme, uh, was unlawful, um, was illegal, um, and, is, and has committed itself now uh, to reviewing uh, Robodet cases, uh, freezing, freezing, uh, freezing certain uh, Robodet, and coming up with uh, coming up with the list. Um, of of people of of robo debt uh, recipients um, who who shouldn't have been uh, debted um, in 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 the first place, um, and so while they while they do this uh, do this process, um, they're also basically scrap you know they're basically seemingly scrapping and transitioning uh, to a to a to a new system entirely. So um, this is this is quite big. Uh, there's a lot going on, um, and you know after a few years. Of groups like ours, of not my deaf people, uh, camp campaigning um, on this, it's, it's exciting to, to finally get some movement on what has been an absolutely disastrous scheme for low-income Australians. Yeah, totally. I just wanted to hone in on. So you mentioned the income averaging. I just can't believe that they thought that that was something they could do. Uh, can you explain that a bit more? What that what that actually looked like? <laughs> yeah, it's um, such a joke. So basically, uh, they use, uh, you know, so they use annual income data um, from the from the tax office, right? And they decided to auto automatically um, average average that across um, people's fortnightly um, income income reporting. Um, an extremely blunt automated tool, which unsurprisingly resulted in you know huge discrepancies, uh, you know, because, you know, a lot of people on, you know, a lot of people on, on social security, 
uh, while they're working are in like insecure or casual work. Uh, so there will be, you know, there will be a fortnight maybe where you don't get any work or you have nothing to, you have no income to report to Centrelink. Um, there might be fortnights where you do get a lot of, you do get a lot of work, um, and you are reporting, uh, you are reporting that to Centrelink. Mm. Um, this, this robotic tool couldn't take any of that, um, into account. Instead, it just did, you know, a really rough splicing, um, a really rough splicing of, um, of, of, of 26 fortnights, averaging out all the income you'd receive over a 12 month period, um, to those blocks. So if there were like, you know, discrepancies, um, you know, like that, um, it could automatically, uh, it, it was automatically presuming, um, that you were putting in your information incorrectly, mm-hmm. um, or actively defrauding, <laughs> defrauding the, the government, which is ludicrous. And the really sad, you know, horrible aspect, um, of this is it was, uh, a guilty until proven innocent yeah. system. So you probably, you know, probably saw the, you know, the stories and or, or heard the accounts of of people just like over, you know, over years and years having to find having to find payslips, having to dig back into their own personal records because it was up to you as a stressed out, low income worker um, to really like build a case for yourself. Um, you know, to, to, to try and, you know, stop the, the robo that will from, from pounding you. Mm. I can't imagine what it would have felt like to open a letter and see that from Centrelink, you know. That... It's, 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 it's scary. Yeah. Um, like I got, you know, I got my, you know, I got my robo debt, um, uh, one of the late, late 2019, late 2018, sorry. Um, and I didn't get, I didn't get the letter. I got, I just got a call one day um, from a from a Centrelink compliance officer, um, a very a very a very serious and then quite scary scary male voice at, at the end of the line, uh, sort of you know sort of telling me, um, you know that I had this you know had this outstanding debt mm. of, of hundreds of dollars that I needed to enter into a repayment plan um, to, uh, to to pay that back. It's a very you know getting. Mm. You know, getting 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 into debt and, and getting any kind of debt is is is, is a scary thing. Totally. But usually, usually one that you sort of at least try to quite a true statement. But at least you know you have some sort of agency that that you're doing that you're kind of doing this that you're taking money out, um, what, whatever else. The scary thing is just yeah, getting a phone call or, or a mm. letter um, out of out of nowhere, completely completely unexpectedly um, that you that you owe this money. It it. It's, you know, we, we, you know, we've, we've known the, the dire immediate consequences mm. of that. It's, it's, it's sent people crashing into, into a spiral. Um, sadly, it, it resulted in, in people taking their life. It's a yeah. huge, it's a, it's a huge psychological torture the government has, has inflicted on people. Totally. And, and I think it's, uh, there was an article in the ABC that said that more than 2,000 people died after receiving a Centrelink debt notice. And I'm just wondering, will the, is this being discussed at all in the class action? Will there be any kind of justice for, for those? Yeah, deaths? Um, it's 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 for, for those for those deaths. It's, it's, it's unclear. Um, the class action is certainly trying to make this case that, um, which you know seems seems cut and dry, but we'll we'll see that that robo that has caused um, unfair duress. Mm. Um, on on its on its on its recipients, 
and the class action is is seeking uh, is seeking damages um, for for families for the for the undue suffering. It's it's delivered onto people. This is where, in response, um, you've probably seen that uh, you know the government is planning to argue um, you know that it actually does not have a duty of care uh, to to robot uh, participants, uh, which is something that was flashed over the Guardian. Mm. Uh, I think I think last week and, and generated a lot of, of of outrage, where basically as a ploy to try to avoid. Um, try to avoid paying out damages um, to people, um, uh, you know, to, to victims of, of robo-death. The government mm. basically is <laughs> trying to cite uh, social security law and make this claim that, well, in social security law, there's nothing in there that says, you know, the government has to look after its citizens uh, properly, um, and that's, that's the kind of defense mm. um, that, they're, that they're trying to, to, to lean on, uh, whether that works. Seems, seems seems unlikely, um, but it's, but it's all still it's all still unclear at the moment. Yeah, how low can they go? I guess this is what it's come down to. <laughs> well, basically, the robotic scheme is is, is is real proof that yeah, there's, there's no depth yeah. on this government when things too when it comes to uh, raking welfare recipients mm. um, over over the coals, and you know just the you know they just just very very clearly uh, didn't. Didn't care, but in 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 this space, um, you know, when it's the lives of, of low-income people, especially um, especially affected, you know, probably probably didn't foresee um, that it would become um, this much of a this much of a sort of a, a national mm. um, huge issue. But you know, the, 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 the stupid thing is, you know, robot that has affected um, so many so many people, mm. hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Um, of, of people at sort of this time with their cruelty, they, they flew a bit too close to the sun to get yeah. away with it. The sun of their cruelty, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that metaphor works. <laughs> so, Jeremy, just a final quick question, and you did say that that you feel like the outcome will be unclear, but do you have any predictions? I, I know I, I know what you would hope will happen, but what do you think is going to come out of this class action? Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, it's... You know, there's, there's, there's a good chance that you know the government will be forced to, to pay damages for, for undue undue suffering and, and harassment. I think what you know, so the class action's already been successful in the government declaring its own program illegal, and you know, at least at least saying now that they're committing to you know, paying back um, false false robo debts. So really, the is yeah, the beauty of the of the class action, which is you know being able to you know being able to you know, mobilize thousands of thousands of people to sort of stand up for their rights and um, you know demand you know to demand demand their rights as as citizens. It's already having that 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 effect of, of mm. making the government back down. They're committed to scrapping the scheme now, um, which is which is great. But we have to keep an eye on the scheme they're replacing that scheme with. Um, yeah, now. totally. So I think I think there's yeah I think there's um, you know, I'm hopeful um, that the class action will, um, you know, will end up either either legally enforcing uh, the government uh, to embark on mass repayment um, of, of a lot of these debts, or at least putting enough putting enough pressure that the government is is, is just going to start doing that now off its own bat. Yeah, let's hope so. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Jeremy. Have a good day. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Jeremy. So, 
Here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Idioma umebinyo, diaspora blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. We're excited to be launching on March 2nd. Connect with us by following the show on Instagram at 3cr.diasporablues. So excited for Diaspora Blues. We can't get enough of that CSA here at Tuesday Breakfast. So I just wanted to mention a couple of things. If you were listening to that interview and you have your own RoboDebt story, you can get in touch with Luke, who is covering these issues at The Guardian, and his email is Gomez H-E-N-R-I-Q-U-E-S-G-O-M-E-S, at theguardian.com. And I also just wanted to pass on some numbers if anything came up for you in that segment we did talk about um, suicide. You can call Lifeline on 131114 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659, sorry, 467. That's 1300 659 467. And we might go to a, a track now. I want to play a song from... Madison McFerrin, and this is off her new album, You Plus I, and this song is called Try.
listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was a nice funky little tune. Uh, for towards the end of the show, George, what was that song? That was Madison McFerrin with Try off a new album U Plus I. Oh, I think I might have a new favourite Madison. Watch out. I know. Every time you said Madison before, which was admittedly once, <laughs> I was like, what is this song you're playing of mine? Which is so Gemini of me to just assume that you'd somehow tapped into like my archive of songs that literally don't exist. Um... <laughs> But no, she's great. <laughs> it's like, well, somehow, like when you're sleepwalking, you just accidentally become some kind of funky pop star. Pop star. I mean, gladly. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, that's 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 your next step. Um, <laughs> after stepping in in cat poo, as you said you did this morning. Yes. Whoa, yeah. what's this cat poo story? Yeah, it's it's pretty much exactly that. <laughs> that was it. Um, oh. Yeah, I woke up and my cat was like. Eh. And then um, <laughs> presented me a little a feces gift, which I then proceeded to step in. Um, and then I did happen to show, uh, on other pet-related news, I did happen to show Zoya a tweet, which was, um, the chihuahuas are aware that is why they shake, which I just thought was hilarious. Um, <laughs> so dark. Um, <laughs> And yes, so we too are aware. Anyway, continue on with what we're here for. <laughs> I feel like there has to always be mention of animals in this show now, though. In pet news. Yeah. In, in <laughs> pet news. You could have a pet news corner. I love it. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Um, so coming up now to round off the show, we have a 3CR uh, member of the 3CR family, I suppose you could say. Sherry's back in town. Hey. Hi. How are you Hi. Going? <laughs> so it's uh, Shahrazade Blue, who is an academic at which university are you at? Oh, God, can we... Uh, I don't know if we can say I'm at an academic place. yet, but, yeah, um, at Deakin University. You're an academic. Oh, you study things. You write about things. You presented at a conference, okay. which oh. is what you're in to talk about oh. because you were um, speaking at the Activism at the Margins conference, uh-huh. which took place a couple of weeks ago. This is a conference that's all about um, uh, work that's being done by activists, academics, and marginalised um, 
people in marginalised communities, bringing them together to talk about the issues that are facing all of us, um, the intersections, how we can all work together, and especially with a big focus on the digital age. And so 3CR was at the conference, recorded a bunch of things, and also as part of it, we've been getting people in who spoke at the conference to kind of give us little mini tasters about their research, what they're doing, and just having a bit of a general chat about interesting stuff, which is why um, I desperately, desperately begged Scheherazade to come in not long after. She'd just got back from Morocco, and I'm like, you're coming to speak, and you're like... (laughs) Okay, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're just having like a nice catch-up and some and a meal. I'm like, no, I'm networking. <laughs> oh, the joys of networking. <laughs> it was great. You remember what it was like when you were on Thursday breakfast. Everything's a story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, um, yeah, so I presented with uh, a person from the region, which I was talking about. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know. I guess I'll just quickly say um, I was in Morocco for the past uh, several months, I think about six to seven months, I haven't even calculated yet, let's just say six months, Um, and when I was there, I spent quite a, um, so my research, it concentrates on sort of digitization and activism um, amongst young people in Morocco, Um, and I was, and among diaspora as well, and I was particularly interested in um, looking at what happened in this particular movement um, called the Harak al-Rif. Um, which just means the movement of the Rif. It's also called sometimes Herak al-Shabi al-Rif, which means popular movement of the Rif. Um, and the Rif before, because I'll be talking about the Rif a lot in this little segment, um, the Rif is the northern region of Morocco, which borders Europe. Um, and I say borders Europe because there's those two Spon- Spanish enclaves, so that's the only part of Africa which shares a land border with Europe. Um, and it also is uh, the uh, door to the Mediterranean as well. So it's just that northern region of Morocco. Uh, and uh, I think that plays also a very important role, uh, its geographical location in um, protest uh, and in activism as well. Um, if we quickly talk about uh, its history, as well, if I can, because <laughs> uh, I think it's very important to uh, contextualise uh, what happened there as well. Uh, so back in uh, in the 1920s, uh, there was a successful republic that was set up um, or fought for. Uh, so the uh, le- the um, so the guy who sort of got all the tribes together to fight the Spanish because that area was colonised by the Spanish uh, was a guy called uh, Abdul Karim Al Khatabi, uh, and uh, they uh, waged this war and. It was amazing the numbers that they like. <laughs> it was a guerrilla warfare. I think there was about um, a few thousand people from the Rif uh, versus like seventeen thousand Spanish, uh, and they set up a successful republic and even had their own currency and everything. And it was the first post-colonial uh, republic, I guess, um, in Africa. Uh, it was then it scared the French a lot, um, and who colonized most of Morocco, um, and so the French with the Spanish and the Moroccan Sultan uh, then. And, uh, led this horrible repressive uh, campaign against the um, republic. Uh, they so Spain acquired mustard gas from uh, Germany post World War One, and they released this mustard gas on that whole area. 
uh, and uh, they, they, people think it's the first known uh, aerochemical warfare against the civilian population. So that was back in the 20s, 1926, I'm pretty sure was the exact date. Um, and the effects of that are still, reach, are still felt today. So uh, there's, huge, there's high cancer rates. That region has the highest cancer rates in the country and research into the linkage between the aerochemical warfare of the 1920s and, uh, the can- and cancer rates today is banned so we don't know if that's the actual linkage but we can say that most people say that that's the linkage <laughs> um, and so that was and, and this is important because that was one of the demands of this protest movement called Herak, the Herak al-Rif uh, which demanded for a uh, cancer treatment facility because there's no cancer treatment facility in that region, uh, people have to go all the way to Casablanca or Rabat to get uh, treated uh, to chemo or whatever uh, and also uh, so, so I'll quickly I don't know, do you want me to? I just went on a little tirade about history there. <laughs> do you want me to? <laughs> I love history. History's great. Um, do you want me to quickly talk about? Maybe I'll just talk about how the movement started, uh, and then we can talk about um, a queer. So the movement started in 2016 with the death or, of a fishmonger called Musin Fikri. Uh, so he was crushed to death in a garbage truck, uh, and people we we. Like there's no like direct evidence, um, though there are videos that sort of emerged online um, of authorities saying, like we know authorities were there and we know he got crushed in the garbage truck after his um, uh, supply of illegal swordfish was thrown in the garbage truck and he like went in to try and get his swordfish. Um, and so then after that, uh, this movement started and got quite uh, strong in 2017. Uh, in 2017 or so, uh, and that's when I started, so I got obsessed with this. Uh, I was receiving all these notifications and everything on WhatsApp and uh, on Facebook, but mostly on on WhatsApp, my WhatsApp family group, which has like 100 family members from around the world, like mostly in Morocco and France, but like, yeah, so uh, all this this was quickly disseminated online and uh, and it sort of mobilised the whole country. Uh, and then in 2017, uh, it was heavily repressed by the state. Uh, so the military moved in uh, into the region and into the centre of it, which was a city called Al Hosema. So he he was killed in Al Hosema as well. And this region is also where this uh, tribe, the Al Khatabi tribe, uh, so the the leader of the resistance movement in the 1920s is from. So you know, well this is linked, which is why I talked about the the context before. Um, yeah, and so uh, then there were mass trials and mass arrests, uh, mass arrests and mass trials, uh, and we and the uh, so-called they um, characterise them as leaders, but most people within the um, movement don't say that they're leaders. They're sort of like the bottovos, um, the spokespeople, the spokespeople of the of the movement. Um, but yeah, so that the spokespeople of the movement got 20 years uh, jail sentence uh, and they're still in in jail. Uh, They've been moved around a few jails, um, a few prisons around the country and at the moment I think they're in Fez. Um, But yeah, okay, I guess I'll (laughs) I'll stop there and I'll wait for you to ask a question. We have about about two minutes left on the show. Oh no! I didn't realise I talked for so much. Great contextualisation but in those last last two minutes this is is your challenge. In your work you talk about something called a queer and um, its digitisation. Can you encapsulate what that is in 30 seconds? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Okay, so queer means circle 
uh, in the indigenous. Oh. Wow, I didn't even talk about this. Uh, so the, uh, the Morocco has a quite, quite a variety of uh, different ethnic groups, uh, including the Amaziah, the different Amaziah groups, which means free men, or we could say free people, because it's not <laughs> yeah. so free people, which just is, I guess, a synonym in in the Australian context of the indigenous indigenous mm. people. So pre-Arab. Um, Invasion, which was uh, 1400 years ago. So, uh, queer means circle in that specific dialect. So it's not Arabic. Um, it's uh, an indigenous dialect from that region. Um, and circle, uh, it was in the, the formation of circle. It's, it's sort of, um, uh, an indig- indigenous mode of direct democracy, we could say, where people gather in a circle and share ideas. Uh, and especially with the move, it was, and in our paper, we argue that the uh, circle was the basis, or these aquirists were the basis of, of the movement. Because what happened was uh, when they first, before the movement even started, uh, people would be gathering on uh, this, a central uh, place, uh, um, a square, central square, uh, and they started these, these circles where people who, usu- who you usually wouldn't pass in everyday life would then participate in these circles uh, and then uh, started talking about, you know, maybe history or like the oppression that they were facing or ideas that they had to start the movement. So um, then when that particular, so when the public place was closed off and militarised, they moved it online and that was the crux of our paper. And we talk about that and then um, how Morocco, uh, the repression also moved online as well. Well, that's been recorded and we'll probably play it at some point soon. Now we have Accent of Women.